0: Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast Transformative Principal and author of two books now, School X and How to Be a Transformative Principal. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education.
1: Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, raising cyber-ethical kids, and cyber traps for expecting moms and dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices.
0: Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org.
1: The Cybertraps Podcast is a production of the Center for Cyberethics, a 501c3 independent nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyberethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. Greetings there, Jethro.
0: Well, happy Monday to you, Fred. Mm.
1: Well, it is not a bad one. Any day we get up and get to talk to each <laughs> other about this stuff is all good. So here we are.
0: Yes, I'm excited about our topic today um, because we are talking about school. The title is We're Listening, School Monitoring of Social Media. And this is a, an, a very interesting thing because what, what you put out there in the public sphere is public. By default. And then, so that means anybody can read it. But then it's also kind of weird when entities that are not your intended audience are reading it also. So this will be an interesting conversation.
1: Well, it, you know, as I dug into this in preparation for the show today, it was really interesting to see how many different layers there are to this particular onion. Yeah. So I hope <laughs> that people really get a lot out of it. Um, so, to start with, for our topic today, um, and, and I think this is where you as a former frontline educator really can be informative is, is to talk about some of the motivations that schools would have to do this kind of monitoring and we've talked about some of these topics but dive in.
0: Yeah I think the two big things that always come up are student safety first and school safety second and I've gone on numerous rants about this whole safety thing that, you know, I won't go into completely now, but what I have seen is that the, the purpose is, and we do a lot of things in the name of safety, even if they aren't necessarily keeping us really that much more safe. Um, and so there's a lot of theater around it. There's a lot of, we're doing this to keep everybody safe. For example, at my daughter's current school, when I, uh, go to pick her up, um, From school in the middle of the day or something they do not let me into the building and they have a little buzz in system that you ring the little bell and then they ask you what you're there for and instead of saying come on in we're happy to have you here parent they keep the door closed and they say we'll send her out and just that little tiny piece there makes you they do it to keep the school safe and keep people from coming in when they're not supposed to but it also feels hostile to me. It makes me feel like they, one, don't want me there, and two, think that I'm a threat because I'm coming in the front door. And those types of approaches just have never made any sense to me. But that's a physical representation of it. But then the digital representation of it is that they're looking for things that could be getting people to... Um, find ways that, that people might be threatening or harming themselves or the school. And and really, that is just too much to ask a school to do, first and foremost. And yet, there are laws that are asking them to, and there are policies that are expecting them to, and it's it's really unfortunate. Now, will you talk about the political and religious orthodoxy? Because I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that.
1: <laughs> well, and I think, as we have repeatedly said, that these are issues up and down the spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the kinds of debates that we're having in this country. But one of the things that pops up time and time again in the teacher cases that I work on it are instances in which schools are looking at the social media posts of their educators and making judgments about whether or not those statements align with the values of the school district or of the community. And We've talked about this many times, and it's absolutely clear from the case law that if schools are concerned that the public comments of an educator are causing disruption in the classroom or lessening the effectiveness of that educator in that community. So again, we can come up with scenarios Mm -hmm. throughout the spectrum, then they're entitled to take action on those public statements. But the problem is when school districts are looking at things that may be public but have the feeling of privacy. So, for instance, a closed Facebook group, you know, technically those are public statements if someone wants to share them with the school administration, but it isn't necessarily something the school administration would stumble across if they looked at someone's feet. Mm-hmm. So you start to get into some gray areas pretty quickly, and actually, one of the things that turned me on to this topic for today, Jethro, was the fact that a school district retaliated against a parent in exactly that kind of scenario. I know, you know where the parent had said something to other parents, and then they actually called our employer and got her fired. Yeah. So this stuff is really open to abuse.
0: It it certainly is, and when you have a a person in a position of power, like a superintendent or a school board member, who is saying that this parent is saying or doing something that we don't like and is, is threatening us. And part of the challenge is that we have turned um, speech into violence, which is really unfortunate also. Because if you have an opinion that goes against what the, the person in power wants, then you are being violent or threatening towards them, even if that is not the case. And I say that because right. I've actually seen it, that there was a parent uh, that I've experienced who was upset with what the school district was doing, and there was a lot of hubbub at district office about this parent threatening the school district because they didn't agree with us. And there was there was no credible threat in what they said, but the district acted like there was. And uh, And by district, I mean... The uh, superintendent and assistant superintendent and some of the principals in the district were saying this is this is an example of the parent going crossing the line and saying threatening things. And and that was not the case. They felt threatened because their inappropriate behavior was being called out. <laughs> and, and there's a difference there, right? Which is terribly threatening. <laughs> <Yes>. because...
1: <laughs> I mean, no, I look, hate it when that I... happens. <laughs> as we all do, yes. what, no matter what situation are in. Well, look, I, I think that you know this idea of orthodoxy right, is one that we're grappling with in this country right now. You've got these uh, pieces of legislation that are trying to restrict what can be taught and how it can be taught. There's issues around books and mm-hmm. book banning that is disturbing. Um, you know, There's concerns over whether points of view are being suppressed. Uh, there was actually a, an op-ed in the New York Times this morning talking about a situation down in uh, University of Virginia where you know, a student came onto campus and didn't feel comfortable raising certain topics. So this is something we're really grappling with, I think, as the country. But the question that we're really confronting today, Jethro, is what ability does a school district have to monitor and use the information that they find on social media to deal with personnel to deal with students and to deal with parents and and this is where this this conflict between public expression and retaliation really comes to the fore
0: Mm -hmm. well and it's really about uh, a a lot of it is about free speech and being able to express how you feel about certain things and for a student or a teacher there is some authority that the district has over those people but in the case of a parent the district has no authority over that person whatsoever and in fact it should be the other way around because the parent by paying their taxes is paying for the school board and the school district to operate at least in a small part so even though well, and
1: even more directly than that The fact that the parent is entrusting their child to this organization and to these individuals legitimately gives them a voice, right? right, in terms of what is going on. Now, just let me drop a footnote here that I have some issues in terms of you know schools having to deal with potentially hundreds of vetoes, right? For for specific decisions that have been made. There's there's a complicated piece to that as well. Yeah. But that's another topic for another day. I think in terms of our conversation today, the question is, you know, how far can schools go? And what are the risks, obviously, when they do so? You raise the First Amendment concern. Uh, There's also invasion of privacy. There's abuse Mm -hmm. of power, some of these other things we're talking about. That being said, there's so much fear out there. There's so much concern over what can go wrong in the schools. And some of it's intellectual, but a lot of it is physical, right? Mm -hmm. Are there are there children who are going to harm themselves Are there children who are going to harm other children? And God knows we have enough examples to justify some concern, mm-hmm. you know, which is why you actually see federal legislators starting to look at this as a potential area for regulation.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think we should highlight this story from Michigan about the the mom who was fired from her job and talk a little bit. Well, that's more. the one
1: I was referencing. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk yeah. a little bit
0: more about that to bring some, some context to it because it's a good example of what sounds to me like overreach and sounds to the courts <laughs> like overreach since the district had to settle with this mom. So it was in Rochester, Michigan and Elena Dinverno. I don't know if I pronounced her name correctly or not, but she, she said that she had posted some stuff in what I believe was a, closed facebook group not just on her mm-hmm. feed but a closed one and then uh the school district somebody from the school district called her boss and then she was terminated and that is a crazy thing that i i can't even fathom how that all came to be <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> the the news story does not include much of that so um so then well, she... and we
1: could yeah we could dig into more detail but but yeah the crazy piece on this jethro is that the employers went along with
0: this right and and so of what she had to have said must have been very alarming or bothersome and must have been enough for the for the school district to for the employer to say yeah that's bad but that's the crazy part is that the employer would say this is bad enough that we're going to fire her from her position in um, in our in our business, which the uh, the employer is Blake's Hard Cider, so it's not like it's a <laughs> it's not like it's a public service entity, and that conduct is unbecoming of you know like a charity or something like that. Like,
1: right, and she's not a national security threat or anything. Right, like, like some that.
0: of those things you could okay, that makes sense, but. But Blake's hard cider is firing her and we don't know what her role was there or anything like that. But um, but her basically her advocacy over school policies during covid is um, doesn't seem like a reason why you would would fire someone.
1: Well, I, I, I agree. And I I think we're to be fair to this whole scenario, there's probably more information that would be useful to really parse this out. But one of the things you can infer from the initial reporting that I dug up was that um, the idea of collecting information from other parents and trying to solicit videos of different aspects of the school district's behavior Mm -hmm. is probably part of what was going on, you know, in the sense that And and I'm not saying this reflects well in the school, but it seems like Ms. Dinverno is was viewed as an organizer, you know, of this protest against what the school was doing, and you know, depending on how she worded things, you as a as an educator could imagine how people might feel threatened. Mm -hmm. Um, As you say, maybe they were just being called out for their own. You know flaws as administrators, or there was a policy disagreement, which certainly seems to have been. But how all of this unfolded, you know, on the Facebook group is relevant, obviously, to the reactions of people. I am just blown away that an employer would take this kind of action. You have to think that they're also potentially legally on the hook. for an unlawful termination but i assume that's a separate issue
0: yeah so one of the things that uh that the blake's blake family of companies the spoke the president of that andrew blake he said this incident caused a great deal of disturbance to our operations with incoming threatening calls emails and social media posts against our property and employees and this is where the the vicious cycle of escalation comes in where you know, parents are upset with the school district, so they rally and get people to send bothersome emails and maybe threatening emails or social media mm-hmm. posts to the school district. And then, obviously, the other side is now attacking her personally and doing the same exact thing. And this is where, you know, when we get into these power struggles or these tugs of war where you you just have to one-up the next person, it just leads, especially should... in social media, to just a nightmare that... Doesn't have to be that way.
1: Well, it doesn't have to be that way, but it has emerged to become it, it that sure way. has. And this is this is really the core theme of the rise of the digital mob, right? Mm-hmm. Because at some point, this agreement that took place between Ms. DeVern and the school district would have been geographically limited. Mm-hmm. It would have been limited to the people in that school community and the resolution of that debate that discussion that disagreement all these good d words would <laughs> have been you know amongst the local folks but the problem is now of course that for the last two decades we or more actually we've had the ability to galvanize people across the country or even around the world to our outrage to our point of view that we're you know trying to convey and so it has amplified and magnitude the scale of every disagreement. Mm-hmm. And and you're absolutely right that or the the president of that company is absolutely correct. They were probably getting threats from way outside of Michigan.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, to people who couldn't find Rochester on a map.
0: <laughs> no kidding.
1: <laughs> and to be fair, I mean I couldn't either, yeah, <laughs>
0: I mean, thankfully, Uh, Google and Apple Maps make it really easy to find something on a map now, but a paper map, (laughs) no way. But a digital map, I could sure find it and and do something about that.
1: But but the point being that what interest do you have in this disagreement in this school district? What's your investment apart from some social media fueled outrage that resonates with some belief or value you have right so in a sense and this is a question we should all be asking ourselves a lot more frequently what what fight you know do i have in this Mm -hmm. you know what what dog is is fighting for my position on this particular thing why do i have to say anything
0: well and and this gives credence this fuels the argument of why schools should be monitoring social media posts because they want to protect their community and their the way they're doing things and and just going down this path says yeah we need to make sure that we prevent people from saying these things because we don't want to get a a tweet storm or a firestorm of an internet mob coming after us and then have to deal with everything that comes with that um,
1: well, that's actually a good illustration, though, of the dynamic here, right? Because mm-hmm. if, if Ms. Deverne and her colleagues or, or her social circle were on a closed Facebook group, then they were much less likely to generate the kind of, you know, digital mob. Uh-huh. Because theoretically, that is a closed local group of people. You can, you know, geolocate these groups and make it. I you know, have to offer permission to get involved and so on and so forth. So that suggests that the school again overreacted to what was going on because the likelihood of spread was much less. That being said, if you've got something that's happening on Instagram or Facebook more openly. Then yeah, that creates a real risk of what you're talking about, and companies worry about this all the time.
0: Yeah, and and for good reason because these things do happen, and so it makes it challenging to know when you should uh, try to stop that and what it could escalate to, which could include um, hacking of the school system, and and we know that those systems are not the most secure in the world <laughs> <laughs> because they're they're not paying. million to an IT firm to ensure that it's secure all the time. So those are, those are challenging things that districts definitely have to try to figure out and balance whether or not it's, it's really an issue that they need to, to stop, you know, and, and the other part of this is how can you facilitate discussion around those things? And, and so that a a lot of times people just want to be heard. And so they don't get heard and so then they resort to social media stuff and and that if you if they were heard maybe those things wouldn't have happened and so you could curtail that by calling them on the phone crazy and because you know their name on social on Facebook specifically and you know they're in your system so you call them up and say hey I saw this post and I want to talk to you about it what's going on and that would be a way to really uh fizzle things out if you approach that appropriately which um is also a time-consuming thing that people need to do but you're still you know going and looking at what their posts are
1: well exactly and that's absolutely right and and so what school districts need to do obviously is to weigh the pluses and minuses here of doing this because it is an alienating thing inherently Mm-hmm. It's alienating for the students to feel like they're being watched and monitored, even if there are more compelling reasons to do so. It certainly alienates parents. and it creates an atmosphere of distrust vis-a-vis the staff and teachers.
0: Mm-hmm. and And everybody feels like if we if we post anything, somebody's going to be watching. And so that chilling effect of of not saying things that are going wrong, of not speaking out about things that are bad that are happening, that shouldn't be happening, it makes it very difficult because if they can fire a parent from her job that's not even in the school district, what can they do to me as a teacher?
1: Well, I think we've talked about that many times about (laughs) what they can do to teachers. That's that's a huge and very clear issue. Um, So let's talk a little bit about the different kinds of content that could theoretically be monitored. Right. I I think anybody who's listened to us is absolutely clear on the fact that if it's public social media, there's pretty much zero privacy rights to it. Yeah. Now, you know, the First Amendment piece gets a little bit tricky depending on your role in the community and yada, yada. But generally speaking, people should think about that like they think about trash that they put out in front of the house. It can be picked up and viewed by anyone who wants to do that. I'm not saying that all social media is trash but but you know um, but so where things get a little bit interesting and I've seen this pop up in a couple of rare instances is you know whether or not schools could legally ask for instance for the account information of their students um, and then I think this has popped up more in The instances that I recall are, for instance, religious schools might have more controls, private schools as opposed to public schools, Um, but it's still a relatively rare thing. Um, Obviously, if a school does not have that information, they're not going to be able to get in and see the private non-public posts of Mm -hmm. someone. Um, Same, generally speaking, for messaging. You know, so... This actually, by the way, popped up in the Ethan Crumley case, again, in Michigan. Mm-hmm. I remember the young man at Thanksgiving time who shot four of his classmates. And there had been some very disturbing texts back and forth between Crumley and his parents, and which, by the way, is why they're now being prosecuted for negligence, um, but negligent homicide. But there would be no way a school could see those text messages. There's no mechanism for doing so. Now, there are some messaging systems out there that schools can monitor, but not many schools have implemented those on a widespread basis. And that's really between teachers and students, not students and their parents. Yeah. So that, that area is pretty much closed off. You know, the last thing, and, and this is something every school administrator should be very clear about, is that any attempt to hack or otherwise intrude upon someone's social media account, regardless of how concerned you are, is just not a good idea.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and in my experience as principal, there have been times where there have been issues where we've needed to see what kids have sent to each other and things like that. And, um, and I've gotten different advice from different lawyers in different districts that I've worked in. So there is not... That's
1: no surprise. <laughs> yeah.
0: There is not a... A be-all and end-all catch-all for this kind of thing and sometimes they say you are absolutely not allowed to all the way over to if they're using their school their phone at school you have a right to ask to see it especially if it's causing issues now I I don't agree with that far end of it but I've been told you can search a kid's phone go into their accounts no problem at all you have total right to do that as a principal I do not feel that I do, <laughs> but but some districts are more uh, more forceful in that approach than others are. And and so my approach with this was to always ask what what has been sent? What did you see? What did you send? How did this lead up to this and, and ask these questions and if you have a relationship with the students they will often admit what has been going on and what they've done and i have had kids admit that they sent threatening messages to others in uh, in small groups or that they sent them to others publicly or and everything in between and the thing is is that they they don't understand what they're doing often and so they don't realize how bad it is and speaking specifically about students here teachers and parents do have a better understanding of what they're doing, but I would never ask to search a teacher's phone or their messages or anything like that. It just, it would be well, yeah. way out <laughs> yeah, of line absolutely. for me to do that at all. So well, without a search warrant. It, right. But, <laughs> but <laughs> then also with the search warrant, the police have told us also, you have much more leeway to search anything here at school than we do. So you do the search and then tell us if you find anything. And that has been the the response from police because they they have to go through yeah, a lot absolutely. more hoops to, to to get that. So the thing is is like there's not a a clear clear guidance on what the right thing to do is in this situation. And that makes it really tough for school leaders to make that decision when the time comes.
1: It's complicated. And and I would say to you that at some point we should do an entire search and seizure uh, podcast because, you know, the thing is, you're raising these fascinating questions because if you have an articulable suspicion as a principal that there's some evidence of wrongdoing on a student's phone, you can request to look at that phone. And some things will be readily available to you, assuming the phone is not locked.
0: Right. If yeah. the
1: phone is locked, do you have the right to hold it up to the student's face or make them put yes. their thumb on, yeah. the, on the phone? You know, So that gets a little bit tricky. But then when you go into a phone like that, once it's open, text messages are readily viewable. But mm-hmm. the minute you run up against a service, which requires a separate password entry,
0: mm-hmm. then you
1: get all of these same issues again in terms of how far you can go with that search.
0: Yeah. And, and, and that, you know, can you force them or coerce them or ask them to unlock and whether you should or not. And my approach was I shouldn't because it's not that that's beyond my scope as a principal, I would say, but I know that not every principal agrees with that and not every teacher does either.
1: Well, it's interesting just because there's relevance to these issues on a global scale as well. But one of the things I've been following is that um, journalists in Russia have been urged to strip away any biometric entry mechanisms from their phones, mm-hmm. so that their faces or their fingerprints can't be used to get into that content. Yeah, and you know, I'm not saying that you know teachers or students here need to do that. But it shows how these things can play out. You know, these are these are challenging, challenging issues. And technology, of course, it increases our exposure. And I think that's what we're talking about, right? In terms of the availability of information to any entity that we interact with, is much greater because of social media.
0: Yeah, and it certainly is. And and one of the other things that I want to talk about here is the. Um, so we talked a little bit about the invasion of privacy. We talked a little bit about the chilling of, of speech. And I, I want to go into also the abuse of power against teachers and students and parents that it can exist. And certainly getting a person employed from their private employment is, a, an, is an example of, of that abuse of power. But then, you know, as I alluded to, some some principals think that if anything happens – within the school building, then they have purview to it. And personally, I don't agree with that. Or if it causes any disruption, then they have purview to it. And that that's where somebody, and and I've seen this uh, specifically recently with one of the people that I work with, where the, the teacher um, had a student who was messaging someone or, or doing something with their phone. And the teacher demanded that the student unlock their phone and show what they were sending in the middle of class, in front of all the peers. And that is just a recipe for disaster. You never want to put someone in the spotlight in front of their peers and, and set them up like that. And that was, you know, a really, uh, frightening situation that didn't need to escalate the way that it escalated because that could have, you know, if the kid sent something and then deleted it on their end, you know, that's, that's one thing, but you know, you've, you just can't put yourselves in yourself in that kind of a position where you're in a power struggle in front of peers because the kid will always be willing to go further than you should be willing as the adult.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think that's a really good point. I think how schools do this kind of monitoring is truly important. You mm-hmm. know, that what you're talking about, that kind of personal embarrassment is just such a terrible way to do anything. The only good response I ever saw to that was an April Fool's video that popped up at one point where a teacher had a policy that anytime a student received a phone call during class, the student had to put it on speakerphone. Uh-huh. So they they rigged it up so that one of the female students got a fake pregnancy test report <laughs> called oh, into the phone. And the teacher, you see the teacher in this video, like, turn it off, turn it off. I don't want So, you know, the the kids sometimes get pretty clever about this, but getting back to our topic, yeah, the abuse of power, right? We we talked about the parent having to grapple with that vis-a-vis the school district. Um, There are going to be plenty of teachers who claim that their firings were an abuse of power because schools were going through their social media, monitoring what they're saying. Again, this dance around the First Amendment and the limits of speech vis-a-vis their role in the community. And, you know, as far as students go, we've got that recent case of uh, Brandy Levy, uh, mm-hmm. who was the cheerleader who made inappropriate and, shall we say, fairly scatological comments <laughs> on Snapchat and got punished for it because the school was shown you know, what she said, and they felt that was inappropriate, and they canned her from the team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she took it all the way up to the Supreme Court and won. Yeah. So, you know, schools do need to be conscious of the fact that they can overstep with this stuff.
0: Yeah, and it's really easy to also, because in the heat of yes. the moment, you can, you can think that something is a bigger deal than it actually is, which every time the district loses, somebody did that. I mean, that is... That is exactly what happens is that somebody said i can't do this now there are different ways to to get at this information you know you can just be perusing social media yourself and see it for sure um you can have parents or other people send in what they see take screenshots of it and send it in which um which is which is frustrating if you're the one who gets ratted on right um, but then they, <laughs> right. the, one of the most common things that that schools do is they have so- software and artificial intelligence that just monitors everything that is said, and especially in situations of self harm, that is, you know, we want that to happen so that we can help those kids who are struggling, but there are other ways that you can that you can set that up to flag different things besides self harm, and so those are, you know, the the way that 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 happens. But then the IT and human resources departments in schools are, you know, are doing this kind of stuff on a regular basis and mm-hmm. flagging sure. things that are happening and paying attention and calling people in to talk about what they saw on there. And some school districts do it more than others, but the tools all exist, and every everybody should know if you're using a school district email, you should not expect any privacy whatsoever you should expect That's that it's it. everything is going to be read by some sort of artificial intelligence at some point
1: well absolutely right or or even potentially a human being which, Right. You know, a non-artificial intelligence yes I guess <laughs> gonna... well look i think there's some really interesting stuff happening with this and it's it's a little bit challenging as is often the case because you know there's an inherent geeky appeal to some of this mm-hmm. like oh wow they can do that that's really cool and then you sort of step back for a minute and you start to think about some of the social political you know privacy implications of what's being done so by way of example um you know a lot of comp- a lot of school districts are interested in outsourcing this kind of surveillance to third party vendors and if you go through the show notes, there's a bunch of mm-hmm. articles that list various, um, list various people. And one of the technologies that is pretty widely used is this concept of geofencing. So what a, what a monitoring company will do is they'll figure out the geographic location of the school they're working for, the various school campuses. And they can use technology to track every public social media post That is sent from that location Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: so you know if you've got a sports game going on they can in real time monitor what people are saying about that event or all of the posts that are sent from the campus you know they can do their word searches and then their analysis and all the rest of that and you know that's just the tip of the iceberg
0: Mm -hmm. you know
1: when we start blending in some of the other things like facial recognition and location stuff and so on and so forth um, yeah, it's um, it, it's just a lot to keep track of and and I just want schools to take the time to think through what the implications are.
0: Yeah, so in in the spirit of that, let me share a story about a messaging company that uh, that I talked with about using in our um, in our district, and they shared how people,, um, People make uh, these social media or any. They use the service to communicate with other people, and if you if the district pays for it, then the district gets monitoring ability to see everything that's happening, which is just a switch that the company can turn on or off, depending on whether or not they're being paid for it. So, uh, the the salesperson showed me what they were what was going on in our district that we could see through this app that people were using. And so they were already monitoring without us, but they weren't reporting anything to us. That was a violation of, of just being a good human, you know? And so for example,
1: (laughs) that's very old fashioned. (laughs) Yes.
0: So, so they were, they, you could see what was going across and there could have been threats that went across this. There could have been inappropriate messages that went across this. And because we weren't paying for it, the company was not going to notify us of anything that was going on. And there was a clear violation of one of our policies that I saw in the two minutes that I happened to be looking at this report. I could see that a teacher sent out something that violated a policy to specific students. I could see who the students were and there is no way that that person was acting how they were supposed to. And it, it put kids in danger in a, in an extent in a, possible way not like immediate danger but it could have put them in danger and that's one of those things that is is something that you know what do i do in that situation do i do i call that person (laughs) up and say by the way i just happened to stumble on this and found out that you're doing this or do i not i mean what's the right answer in that pay the
1: money or do you pay the money so you actually get the report exactly yep right Right.
0: yeah so that's challenging
1: that's it is very challenging, and it raises this question, which I think is a good thing to, to wrap us up on, which is, do you think that the federal government should be mandating this kind of surveillance?
0: Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> I
1: mean... well, well, wait, we have more to talk about. <laughs> so the reason I asked that question, though, is because most recently, and I don't know if anybody has done this before, but most recently in 2019, Uh, Senator John Cornyn from Texas, extremely conservative senator, uh, sponsored a piece of legislation. And I I really was so glad to find this, Jethro, because you get one mini rant on legislation titles. (laughs) (laughs) So it's the Response Act. And what is the Response Act, Jethro? (laughs) It is the
0: Restoring, Enhancing, Securing, and Promoting Our Nation's Safety Efforts Act
1: what that's actually reasonably grammatical (laughs) (laughs) so maybe we can't yell at them too much yeah but the point is that they're trying to develop or they were trying to put together a variety of different student safety provisions organized around various technological topics and one of them was called children's internet protection and the idea was that um, it would require school districts and districts love being told to spend money like this because it yeah. probably wasn't a dime in the legislation. Exactly. It. Yes. I, hey, I was on the finance committee. <laughs> um, so in any case to invest in programs that detect quote online activities of minors who are at risk of committing self-harm or extreme violence against others. So this really would have been a big boost to this third party monitoring mm-hmm. industry. And, the, you know, we, we have great debates about the level of effectiveness, but but clearly Congress has some interest in this, although so this legislation has not really gone anywhere yet.
0: Yeah. And, and this is something where should states or districts have rules and policies and procedures around this? I would say, yes, that makes more sense. But the mm-hmm. problem with it being at a federal level is that the federal requirements cause so much additional work and money and everything on top of what you're already doing and it is it is just really really difficult anything anything that ever comes out new from the federal government is you know it's it's do this one little thing but it takes this much to do that one little thing and that is really where where the challenges. And so states have a much better idea of what's happening in their states. And, and I would say can have a better idea of what kinds of things to require based on what they've experienced. And that's where, when it, when it's a federal thing, then it becomes very challenging to, to manage. And it requires usually <laughs> numerous people to be touching it. <laughs> Which, <laughs> well, no,
1: that's absolutely true. And I come at it from the perspective that there are some national values, that Mm -hmm. I want a federal government to be involved in and promoting and so forth. But there's clearly a lot of things that do work better at the local or state level. And finding that balance is is the key. I will leave on one small mini rant, which is (laughs) that I will say to any school districts, and I will encourage parents and teachers to inquire about this, uh, that none of this surveillance, if it's going to happen, and I don't think it's a great idea to begin with, but it absolutely should not be surreptitious or hidden. Yes. That school districts should be absolutely transparent about what they're doing, what kind of data is being analyzed, reviewed, who's doing it, how long it's stored. You know, you don't want some kid being harassed 15 years later for something they may have said. When they were 13 or something like that schools should not do hidden surveillance on this kind of thing
0: yeah absolutely
1: editorial opinion but yeah
0: (laughs) no i agree with that wholeheartedly and and it's it's different when you say this is what we're monitoring and part of the the logical reason for doing that is that it keeps what you're using safer and better because people won't be using the tools the district provides to do that because they know that it's being monitored and so then that pushes it out to someplace else which it's not going to eliminate the problem to be sure but one it keeps your job easier of focusing on just the education what's happening there and then the second piece is that it it might make it more difficult for that stuff to even happen it might make Mm -hmm. it more difficult for a kid to go out and get a social media account because their parents would then know and then they or getting a new email address and maybe that would deter some of this from happening not 100 percent for sure but certainly the benefit of keeping it one you're being honest and transparent which i think is really important for an institution like a school and two you're helping keep your your stuff clean and safe also
1: well said excellent Well, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to a growing collection of international experts for helping us to understand the risks
0: and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all of your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions, topic, or guest suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones, and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this episode. Please leave us a five-star rating and review. We appreciate having you in our audience and look forward to seeing you next time.